I'd invite your attention tonight to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at some other passages of Scripture tonight dealing uh, with the subject I call Antichrist Awareness. Antichrist Awareness. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. May God bless the reading of his word tonight is my prayer. Antichrist. Of all of the New Testament writers, John the Apostle is the only one who used this particular title uh, in reference to this person, the Antichrist. We know, of course, who the Christ is. Uh, the Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. It speaks of the anointed one, the sinless Savior, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. Jesus Christ. The word anti has several meanings, but primarily it means something that is the exact opposite of something else. Anti, uh, something that is set against something else, like uh, light and dark, for example. Uh, light and dark. And uh, <laughs> the word anti means that same kind of thing. It also means instead of, something uh, that is put in the place of, or instead of something else. And both meanings are applicable uh, to this expression. The Antichrist is, of course, one who is the diametric opposite of Jesus. And he is one who will offer himself instead of Jesus. Both of those things are true. Now, this is not the only time that the Bible speaks of him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. There he is. The son of perdition. Two names in one passage. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The man of sin and the son of perdition. We'll talk more about those titles in a few moments, but for now we just recognize that the Bible speaks of this person uh, by different names, the Antichrist. The man of sin, the son of perdition. Most frequently, though, he is referred to as the beast. And uh, perhaps most famously in Revelation chapter 13 and maybe verse 17, but obviously if you read through those chapters in the book of Revelation, uh, you'll find the beast referred to again and again and again. Revelation 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. The beast, the beast, the beast. That's all over those passages. Uh, but here it said that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Literally, that is, it is man's number. 
600, three score and six. Uh, uh, man's number is identified as six in the scripture. And by the fact that it's used three times would tend to indicate to me that he's talking about the one who represents uh, the fullness of the kingdom of man, spiritually, intellectually, and uh, uh, also uh, in all matters of uh, finance, commerce, a uh, man who has advanced to the highest that man can be in their way, his way of thinking. It's interesting that the problem of humanity began with the sin of man. And here we're told that it's going to end up with the one who's called the man of sin. Started with the sin of man, ends up with the man of sin. Here's a man who's so wicked, so evil, that sin is going to be the very essence of his being. It is who and what he is. He's the man of sin. Jesus could say to his followers, if you'd known me, you'd known the Father also. And this man could say the exact same thing of his father because he is the very essence of the devil himself. And to know him is to know the evil one, the wicked one, his father, the devil. Why do we call, that, call him that? Because he's called the son of perdition. He's born out of the very pits of hell. And interesting, the Bible is clear that that's where he's going to. Look in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8. Uh, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, the beast, the man of sin... The son of perdition. All of these speaking of this one who is coming, this wicked one, he's also called that in Scripture. I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. I believe the rapture is going to occur at the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, I chose my words very carefully because that's what I believe. Some of you might hear me say that and you'll think, well, he believes that uh, the, the, that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. That's not what I said. <laughs> I said that the rapture is going to happen at the very beginning of the tribulation period. Uh, not before it, but at the beginning of it. And uh, maybe you won't agree with me tonight as I try to explain my thinking to you, but I do want you to understand why I think this way, and it's based here on what the Bible says. Uh, we speak of a seven-year tribulation period, and rightly so. The Bible uses that terminology. But the fact is, we don't know exactly how long it's going to last. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of, this world, of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be, and except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, that's Israel, those days shall be shortened. Jesus said it twice in that passage. We can talk about a seven-year tribulation period, uh, but that time's going to be shortened. How much we don't know. I don't think it's going to be short shortened by half a year or two or three years, uh, but it is going to be shortened. Jesus said it. It's God's grace and God's mercy that is going to hold back that final outpouring of his wrath for a while, shorten the days. Uh, 
It's not going to be then exactly seven years. When you look at all the transition periods in the Bible, you'll find that there was always kind of an overlapping kind of time. So if you wanted to identify exactly uh, what day it was, you might say, that the Old Testament ended and the New Testament began. We might uh, actually have a couple of ideas. We might quickly say, well, the New Testament, of course, began when Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. That's when the New Testament began. And yet Jesus said the law and the prophets were into John. <laughs> and since that time, the kingdom, the gospel, is preached, and all men are pressing into it. And so there was something about the coming of John the Baptist uh, that was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But John the Baptist was also the first to the New Testament prophets. Do you understand why I say there was somewhat of an overlapping period of time there, even up into the book of Acts, as you'll see, as you begin to look at how that happened and, and how the churches were 100% Jewish for several years before they finally uh, got that vision of the great sheet Simon Peter did and went and preached to Cornelius. And suddenly, though Jesus had sent them into all the world, uh, they had pretty much confined themselves to Israel and the Jewish people, but then things changed and they moved along. There was always kind of a transition. And uh, I expect the exact same thing uh, when Jesus comes again and, and that seven years of tribulation starts, the time called the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of judgment that Jesus said has never been before nor ever shall be again. But primarily, I base my thinking on this very passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And I guess I've had to argue with too many people who believe that uh, the tribulation is going to, uh, the rapture is going to come at the end of the tribulation, and there's a growing number of those. And all those guys who believe in a pre-wrath position, they believe that the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. And they'll always go back to this passage and they'll point out to you very quickly, as I'm about to, that Paul talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together with Him and the day of Christ. And he mentions them all in a way that would lead us to indicate, lead us very strongly to believe those are all really one thing. And he then tells us that before that happens, and he was telling the church at Thessalonica those things, that young church, of course, very early on, formed in a fire, experiencing a lot of persecution. Somebody came along and told them, hey, the rapture's happened and you folks missed it. And Paul said, no, that didn't happen. Remember, I taught you, that day will not come until there first be a great falling away and the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition. No question about who Paul is talking about. Now, some explain that idea by talking about, well, you know, the man of sin is just a man, and he's going to be born and grow up. And so, you know, if he's going to appear at, 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 at be 30 years old or 40 years old when he comes on the scene, then he could very well be alive right now. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and I know what some of you teachers are thinking. Yeah, I've had him in class. 
<laughs> I've had that boy. Not Sunday school. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, yeah, I know. I did. Yeah, I can understand that. He might be alive right now. That's, listen, no kidding aside, he may very well be alive right now. But that's not what he's talking about here. He talks about him being revealed. And again, I say, you know, a lot of things that we see in prophecy, we see better in hindsight than we do when we look ahead. Many of you were alive when Israel was regathered as a nation. You remember when it happened. You've watched it maybe on television. Maybe you're like me. You've read about it and you've studied about it and you've rejoiced in the fact that the United States was the first nation in the world to recognize Israel as a sovereign nation. Harry Truman planned that out and did it. Um, but you know, a lot, a lot of people saw those prophecies about the regathering of Israel a lot better after Israel was regathered than they did before. You go back a few decades before that happened, and most of the writing about the regathering of Israel put it, put it all in the millennial reign. And they didn't see Israel coming on the scene the way that they did. And suddenly, God did something that really not a lot of people were expecting. All of a sudden, uh, He fulfilled that promise. Shall a nation be born in a day? Yes. As a matter of fact, it was. It was. Just like that, Israel was declared a sovereign nation. It came to be. We had to do a lot. I say we. I wasn't alive back then, but we, <laughs> Bible scholars had to do a lot of studying over the next few years trying to figure it out. We saw it a lot more clearly after it happened than we did before. And that's true with a lot of fulfilled prophecies, a lot of things. We speculate about it, speculate about it, think, wonder about it. How is it going to happen? Then all of a sudden, boom, there it is right in front of us. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, we might be uh, meeting the Lord in the air before we all really find out who the Antichrist is. Although there's been a lot of speculation about it over the years. How many of you remember when Henry Kissinger was an Antichrist? Anybody remember that? How many of you remember Henry Kissinger? <laughs> That's a, maybe I ought to ask that question. Yeah. <clears throat> Just about every president we've had in my lifetime, somebody has speculated that he was the Antichrist. Um... It may be only a few days in my thinking, uh, but uh, I do believe that the man of sin is going to become apparent. Whether we'll recognize him or not, I don't know, but he'll become apparent based on this passage before the rapture. Therefore, we'll be in the tribulation when the rapture actually occurs. It'll be early, I believe. I believe that very strongly. It may just be a matter of days. But I do believe that he's going to call us out of great tribulation. We will see, or have the opportunity at least, of seeing the man of sin. And then the rapture will occur. Now, if you don't agree with me, you say, Brother Rich, I don't agree with you. And we'll shake hands and still be friends. <laughs> okay? Uh, I know other people believe different things. I'm okay with that. I'm not even trying to convince you necessarily. You say, well, I believe and we're going to be raptured out before the tribulation. Good. I'll leave you to settle those issues that that presents. And there are some issues uh, that that presents. And you settle them for yourself. That's what I had to do. And this is what helped me the most. Uh, and I have I've preached and, and still preach it. 
Uh, I'm not looking for the man of sin to appear. Uh, I'm looking for Jesus to come. Why do I say that? Because Titus chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. And what is that? Our, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We are looking for the blessed hope. And who is it? It is the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. I may not recognize the man of sin when he appears. I may speculate about him and kind of see him and maybe know about it and I might and I might not. But I know one thing. I'm going to know Jesus when He appears, and you are too. Not going to be in our question of our mind. Not going to be like Thomas saying, Lord, let me come up there and, and put my fingers in those nail prints, and then I'll believe. I don't have to check His DNA. I'm going to know Him. I'll know His voice when I hear it. I'm going to know Him. We have known Him as our Savior. We have known Him as our Lord. We have experienced His presence and power. He has lived in us as we talked about it this morning. All our life, we will know Jesus Christ when He comes. That's why I say, I'm looking for Jesus to come. I'm looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet I recognize that John the Revelator, John the Apostle, long ago wrote, there are many antichrists in the world already. And that's how he said, we know that it is the last time. Well, did John get it right? There's been about 20 centuries or so since John wrote that. Uh, was he wrong, mistaken? No. Listen, we've been living in the last days ever since Jesus came. Uh, there was much about that last days that was hidden. It was a mystery. It was the age of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles, and those things were not revealed in the Old Testament. They simply were not. That's why John the Baptist was so confused and said to Jesus, Lord, do we keep, uh, are you the coming one or do we keep on looking for another of a different kind? Uh, he knew about the suffering substitute. He knew about the one who was going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. He just couldn't figure it out or puzzle it out in his mind. The reason was simple. There was much that God had not revealed to them in the Old Testament times. He just didn't. But we've been living in the last days ever since Jesus came. Now, the word, uh, it is the last time that John speaks of in this passage you might be interested to know, could have been translated is the last hour. Isn't that interesting? This is how we know that it's the last hour. There's many, many antichrists in the world now. Therefore, we know, we know. I'll tell you what, if God's time clock is numbered by the rapture and it's going to strike 12, then we could very well be only a few minutes on God's clock from midnight at the dawning of the day of the Lord. We don't know. There have been antichrists, though, in this world since John's day. No doubt there are even more today just simply by the sheer numbers of people on this planet. And because those things are true, I thought it would be good for us to look tonight at some of the characteristics that these passages give to us about the antichrist.
Always in our mind will be this one called the man of sin, the beast, the son of perdition. But let's understand there are many, many people in the world who carry the same characteristics that he has, though they may not be the same identical one. Let's look at some things the Bible tells us about him. We've already seen that this man is called the man of sin, but his most frequent title is the beast and he is called that primarily because he is devilish. He is devilish. And like a beast, he is fierce and bloodthirsty and cruel and ferocious and acts without conscience. I'm not sure exactly why it is that we can raise a little puppy around us and teach him all those things that puppies learn by instinct and learn behavior. And after a while, those little dogs know how to look ashamed. You ever notice that? You ever seen a little dog look ashamed? Mm-hmm. But does that mean that dog has a conscience? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. That cat might somehow look ashamed to you. You might have one that has managed to figure out what that expression is. But you turn it loose on a little bird and watch it play with it till it kills it, and you'll find out, no, that, that cat really doesn't have a conscience. They're merciless. And beasts, they are in creatures of instinct and creatures of nature. They are creatures of intelligence. Don't kid yourself, but they are fierce and bloodthirsty and ferocious. Such is the beast. You know, the only other person in Scripture called the son of perdition was Judas Iscariot. Remember, on the night Jesus died, the Bible says that Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. Can you imagine? Many people were demon-possessed in Scripture. Satan entered Judas Iscariot. I believe that is why the Bible speaks of this man of sin as a son of perdition because he will no doubt be the habitation of Satan himself and as such will be a person of indescribable cruelty with absolutely no conscience or redeeming virtue. We talk of people who are sociopathic. And that is they have no conscience, no sense of what is right or wrong. What is right is what gets them what they want. What is wrong is what keeps them from uh, getting what they want. They can kill and torture and maim with no conscience, never a compulsion uh, of any sense that they have done anything wrong. True sociopaths are unusual, very rare, thankfully. <laughs> Thank God they're very rare. But this man inhabited by Satan himself is going to be an absolute sociopath, no conscience. It is all going to be about himself, what he wants. What he wants is absolute worship, the worship that is due only to God. For while this man, devilish man, may seem peaceable, he'll be peaceable as long as being peaceable gets him what he wants. He'll be knowledgeable, certainly. He'll be helpful as long as being helpful gets him what he wants. But the Bible tells us that while he is peaceable and while he is helpful and while he has all the answers, he is also going to be tightening down his rule on humanity to the point that he will get it to where nobody can buy or sell anything on the face of this planet unless they bow down and worship him and take on his mark. 
He'll leave then two groups of people, those who worship him completely, who obey him and bow before him and his image, and those that he is out to kill. That's the only two. He demands absolute loyalty. He tolerates no rival. He will be the false Christ. Never forget that mankind rendered its verdict on Jesus Christ long ago. Crucify him. Crucify him. What crime had he done? None. He went about doing good. He worked miracles. He did all kinds of wonderful things for so many people. And yet humanity rendered its verdict on Jesus, the sinless Savior. Crucify him. But the Antichrist, interestingly, humanity is going to love him. Humanity is going to embrace him. Humanity, yes, is going to worship him. Why would we call him the exact opposite of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ said that, uh, that, that no love hath greater man than this and to lay down his life for his friends. But the Antichrist is going to call for his friends to lay down their lives for him. The exact opposite. Yet in spite of that, he is going to receive the adoration of humanity, the acceptance. They're going to embrace him and love him and worship him. Even though they rejected the true Christ, the Savior. The evolutionists teach us that mankind came from the beast. But the Bible tells us that mankind is going to the beast. This false Christ, he is devilish, devilish. He's also presented in the passage as being divisive. Verse 18, little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come even now. Are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it's the last time they went out from us, but they were not of us? For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, John makes this very plain. These people went out from us, but they were never a part of us. And he speaks about those who were part and numbered among the Christian faith. Remember the first church, the very one that Jesus started, had a lost person in it. <laughs> that was Judas Iscariot, by the way. They went out from us, he said, because they were not all of us. The United States for the last century, a little more than that actually, has been the center of the world's great missionary expansion. While that is true, it is also true that the greatest and most influential cults in the world have made an America stamped on them. And almost from the same time that America began its great missionary outreach and that great missionary spirit sprang up in the United States and whole conventions and associations of churches were built around the idea of supporting missionaries and sending out missionaries. And we have done it and we continue to do it even till today. And thank God we do. But all that is true. The most evil, vile cults, fastest growing cults in the world started at the same time. I don't think that's a coincidence. If you want to see it in history, go back and read the history of the 1800s, theological history, and see all the cults that started claiming to be the true church, claiming to have a new revelation, claiming to have an absolute understanding of Scripture. Many of them even 
making up their own Bible or their own translations of the Bible. All of these cults move us further as a people, move the world further from the truth of Christ and closer to this counterfeit Christ that is to come. It's no surprise, 1 Timothy 4 and 1, now the Spirit expressly says, if you like the old King James, the Spirit speaketh expressly. <laughs> that is, there is no ambiguity in this statement. The Spirit is speaking absolutely plainly and clearly. The Spirit speaks expressly that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Then will go out from the true faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of devils. And of all the things that these deceiving spirits and doctrine of devils uh, are going to say and do and preach and are uh, saying and are doing and are preaching in our world today, of all things, Paul mentions too, uh, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, from meats, uh, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Uh, these false teachers were presenting an alternative lifestyle and work to turn people away uh, from these fundamental things that God has given to us for our welfare and well-being. They'll use these divided li alternative lifestyles to divide God's people. And most certainly the Antichrist will set out to divide the world, and he will. But they're already at work. The Antichrist then is devilish. And there are many antichrists in the world. What does that mean? There are many, many people in the world today who are evil people, totally self-absorbed and self-consumed. They care nothing for other people. They're not, not out to help anybody except for themselves. They're promoting their own agenda and their own cause. In that sense, they are exactly like their father, the devil, because that's what he's like. And they're divisive. They have devised a, a completely different way of living, a way that does not include marriage, that does not even include the eating with, with, with food that is to be received with thanksgiving. They're setting out then to divide the world. Then the Antichrist spirit is one of deception, almost by its nature. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8 then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Jesus said it, Matthew 24 and 24, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. I'm telling you, the world is set up right now for this to happen in an unprecedented way. What's going to happen when some miracle worker actually arrives? I'm not talking about like some of those who claim to be miracle workers that we all grew up listening to. You know, the guys that... Uh, that filtered through all the crowds. I'm talking about people who could really do miracles and who really will do miracles. 
Imagine what would happen right now if somebody could walk out in the middle of the Arkansas River and shut it down. Imagine what could happen if they could walk into Children's Hospital and empty it out. Imagine a cure for cancer. You say, well, I know this guy's a Christ. How do you know? I saw the miracles he did. <laughs> Meanwhile, the devil's laughing. That wasn't Jesus at all. That's me. His coming will be with great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Wow. There's a possibility then that we would see people who in the name of Jesus Christ would do marvelous things and mighty works. And I think we're seeing that all over the world tonight as, as people who are able to do things and able to say things and able to accomplish things in the name of Jesus are amassing an almost cultic devotion to themselves. Cult followings. It's amazing. We can only imagine what's going to happen when the miracle working element is added in. And so with this antichrist awareness, raising our awareness level, we hear a lot about that these days, of the existence of antichrist and the coming of the antichrist, uh, I want to close out then with uh, words that John gave us just a few verses before he began this sobering warning back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you've known him that's from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you've known the Father. I've written unto you, fathers, because you've known him that is from the beginning. I've written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. John then addresses all these groups of people. Children is one that we'd obviously understand. Someone who is a newborn child of God. And they might not know much, but they know God loves them. They know Jesus Christ has died for them. They had great faith. They've received Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're a child of God. And he writes to them. They might not know a lot of things, but they know some crucial things. That God's their Father, that God loves them. Jesus Christ died for them and saved them. Uh, they know some great things. I write unto you little children. I write unto you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. The wicked one wanted to see you die in your sins. The wicked one wanted to destroy your testimony and keep you from believing in Jesus Christ and keep you from serving him. But now here you are, young and strong, growing in your faith. I write unto you fathers, those who produce spiritual children, because you have known him that is from the beginning. And he speaks of that deep and abiding love grown, uh, born out of a relationship that has grown and developed over a lifetime. And it didn't really matter whether they're a mature believer represented by the fathers, whether they're a person somewhere in the middle, they're young and strong and active and growing in their faith, or somebody just starting out. He writes unto them all and says the same thing. Verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
and the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. He'd go on to talk about that unction, that anointing that we have from the Holy One, so that we know things and we see things. We have an understanding that so many in the world do not have because they don't know Jesus Christ. Antichrist awareness. He's coming. There's no doubt about that. But there are many antichrists, many who carry those same characteristics all around us in this world. Their influence is strong. And that's why he tells us that we need to make sure that our love of God is strong. Because unless we're very careful, whether we're a newborn believer, whether we've been saved for a decade or two, or whether we're a lot closer to heaven sometimes than we like to think about, and we've been saved a long time. Let me tell you something. The love of the world can crowd out the love of God in your heart and mind. And he warns us. Once we have crowded out from our hearts the love of God, once we're no longer abiding and abounding in the truth of God, then that Antichrist spirit is something we can get caught up in or caught up by. Recognize it. Know it's in the world. And know that we stand by the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stand together, please.